Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we continue our foray into our field season series, a quick shout out to new patron Alexandria, or Alex. Thank you for supporting the show, and we hope you enjoy all those bonus episodes. And if you want to join the Dirt's Patreon family, you can head over to patreon.com slash the Dirt Podcast and subscribe at any tier starting at a dollar a month. And you'll get a monthly newsletter and bring us closer to our secret gift for all our patrons when we hit 100 gold. That's we had to rename that. Should, oh, I like that. We should really <laughs> work. <shut. laughs> it uh, really flows. Um, <laughs> this rolls off the tongue. So, okay. That we can save that for a production meeting later. Yeah. <laughs> because okay. Anna, we've got a guest with us on today's episode. Yeah. As you may have just heard, keen eyed, eared, keen eared listeners <laughs> will <may> have known. <laughs> so we are um, sitting down today with Allison Blank. And um, Allison is a classical archaeologist whose research focuses on ancient medical texts. Um, she is also an advocate for inclusivity and accessibility in the field. And we are thrilled to be talking to her today. So thanks for coming on the show, Allison. Thank you for having me. It's yes, thank you. It's very exciting to be here. Well, let's just jump right in. Um, can you describe for us your academic trajectory? What first got you interested in archaeology and how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, so I started undergrad at a pretty small university in Southern California, the University of Auburn. And when I joined as a freshman, I knew that I knew that I didn't want to study history itself, but something history adjacent uh, and I decided that anthropology and archaeology would be a cool way to do that. I ended up applying for a dig my junior year and I got rejected. Um, and that kind of set me off on a, a chain reaction. And through that, I found one of my my first loves of classics, which is ancient cranial surgery. Um, and I did my... Yeah. It's, uh, also known as trepanation. Um Although I like mm -hmm. to call it ancient cranial surgery because there's I love two it. different names that are, sound really similar, but mean two technically different styles of making a hole in the skull. Um, so okay, that was what I did my senior thesis on. And through that project, I realized that there was a whole world of ancient medical practice and ancient medical texts that could inform us better about the skeletons that we dig up um, from all over the ancient world. I tried to apply to grad school and quickly realized that with my anthropology degree, I was not qualified to be a classicist. So I ended up joining a post-baccalaureate program at UCLA, um, learned Greek and Latin, and kind of continued my, my foray into the classics world. 
um, alongside of, of trying to do more archaeology. Um, so I'd been rejected from this dig as a junior and I still hadn't gone to field school and I was having a really hard time finding a field school that would be accessible to me and then finding a field school that would be interested in having me there with my service dog. Mm -hmm. Um, But eventually I found one um, and things moved on. And now I am working on my master's at the university of Arizona. And I have a really incredibly supportive department here. And if it weren't for COVID, I would actually be, in the field right now, digging with Arizona at Mount Lacayon. But unfortunately, because of COVID restrictions and Mm -hmm. the situation in Greece, it was just not feasible for our team to go. I've been really lucky to get funding from Arizona for my research and to focus specifically on bettering my reading skills in Greek and Latin and looking more closely at the archaeology um, and I'm really excited to start working on my thesis this year. Um, ah. The topic of which is still undetermined. Oh. <laughs> mystery, <laughs> mystery thesis. I have some ideas, but I still don't know exactly what's going to come of it. So we'll see. Ah. Oh, well, no, what a great, what a great place yeah, to be. I know. Just ideas. Oh, wonderful. Um, so this is great. You just described so many things that I don't know anything about, um, <laughs> even though I studied <laughs> Greek and Latin. Um, so we also have a <laughs> classical education and we just went, what? Um, but um, so classical medical texts and medical. And, and you know, with those with that. Um, so um, in your study of both classical medical texts and then what you're talking about, sort of um, ancient medical practices, um, writ large. Um, is there anything in that that's relevant to medical care today that you sort of can speak to sort of like, like, Oh, this is just like that, or it has its foundations in it, or is it like all wandering uteruses and like liberal applications of like animal dung? (laughs) Is it, is it that? (laughs) Sometimes that, and that's definitely a part of the medical corpus, but there's a lot of content to, to say the least in the, the Hippocratic corpus and in the works of Celsus and the works of Galen. And there's a lot of other different authors who can be classified as medical authors or who touch on medical topics. Um, but that's a, a pretty large misconception about, about ancient medical practice is that it's completely different from our world today. In reality, the the practices that we have in our our uh, hospitals and our own surgeries really derive from many practices that were a part of the ancient medical corpus. Um, rediscoveries of um, classical texts through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period were just as important for medical practice as they were for any other field. Um, but we know things like hygiene and um, different surgery practices were incredibly important to the ancient practitioners. Um, And the problem with medical practice in medical texts in the classics is that it's largely been interpreted from a philosophical viewpoint. It's been seen as something that is a philosophy text that we can learn more about our understandings of man. And that's true to some extent, but it also is a very practical text. 
It tells us about the ways in which the bodies of the ancient world were practiced on, diagnosed, the conditions that they faced, the treatments that they received, all of those things are a part of the Hippocratic texts and other medical texts. Um, and I mean, we still see it as a part of our own medical philosophy today. I mean, the Hippocratic Oath is still a very common thing for doctors to take when they begin their practice. Um, and the origins of our medical knowledge really begin with these types of texts. Um, so one of the things that I hope to do is look at these texts in a new kind of way, look at them from a, a bioarchaeology perspective, look at them from a disability perspective, looking at them in tandem with the skeletal remains that have been sitting around in bone houses and boxes for decades and decades, not really doing anything because um, largely they've been ignored from a lot of classical archaeology, um, especially in the early excavations of places like Pompeii. Um, bones were just kind of piled up and thrown in a shed and ignored and don't need these. Yeah. Didn't really care about it. They wanted the paintings. They wanted <sighs> sculptures those are the important things. Mm -hmm. um, but the skeletons are just as valuable as well. And looking at them in context with medical text um, can really provide some valuable insights. Yeah. Well, thank you for yeah. mentioning Pompeii um, and like skeletons at Pompeii, because I, I think that a lot of people don't listen to, don't listen to, uh, don't, um, I think a lot of people don't, um, don't <laughs> think of that. Like when they think yeah. about, as you just said, like, they think about the Fiorelli cast. Well, I like that. Not know, only are you uh, thinking about sort of the 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 paintings, mm -hmm. uh, like on the on the walls and the, the gorgeous chariots and stuff, but you're thinking about people being like vaporized and just like thinking about um, how we only are able to like their brains, yeah, yeah like class. all of all of like those studies and those reports that that come out Absolutely. that are like very like visceral, uh, of just like yeah, you just like vitrified brains, and it's like well, actually there were bones, and and that's something that makes it yeah. Is a, I don't for to my mind a much um, sharper reminder of people, and and not just like ghosts because it's just yeah. like you know what I mean like that like those casts and things are very haunting, mm -hmm. but they're haunting almost to a degree of making you forget it's that detached. that was a person. It just is like yeah. sort of an it's an image, yeah. not a person yeah and the way that the story of Pompeii has been told is really as a story um it's not as these this was the, the the real life of somebody and then all of a sudden that life is over but I mean Pompeii is one of the most interesting places in terms of medical practice for me I think because it's one of the only examples where that osteological paradox of bioarchaeology where we only have the dead the the sick and the dying is that's not necessarily true in Pompeii. We have an entire population, no. not just the people who are dead, not just the people too. who are dying, not just the people who were revered and given a, a fantastic funeral. Um, so it really provides a, a, a unique um, opportunity um, 
both for bioarchaeology and for medical studies in, in classics. Was there a doctor's office preserved at Pompeii? Yes, there is a house of the surgeons. Yeah, absolutely. It's really neat. And there's quite a house few medical of the tools. Surgeons. Yeah, it's been titled that because of the medical tools that were found yeah. uh, within the, 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 the walls of this particular house. Mm. It's a really neat site. Ah, wow. That's very cool. Um, so at the moment, you're talking to a couple of people who've worked almost exclusively in prehistoric contexts. So, I mean, never mind Pompeii where things are preserved, but having historical records hanging around just always blows my mind. The idea of people writing down their versions of things. So do you have any favorite moments of text and archaeology reflecting one another or to the other point, disagreeing with one another? Yeah, and I think that's one of my favorite things about text-based archaeology is there's so many different possibilities. It could go one way or it could go the other way. Um, and most of the time we're looking for things that confirm uh, our information that, that's from the text. But um, I think one of my favorite examples is actually from that, that dig that I applied to as a junior. Uh, one of the skulls there has an example of a very clearly Hippocratic trephination where you can see the drill marks. You can see that they were following the different um, kind of guidelines for how to do a trephination as the, the Hippocratic the surgeon had his handbook out and he was going, okay. Uh. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's this idea that uh, this might've been a surgeon either practicing or, um, kind of trying to follow this, this new technique. But the funny part is that unlike many, many of the trephinations and cranial surgeries that we have from around the world, which are healed, a large number of trephinations from most sites, it's usually over 50, 60%. And at some sites, especially in South America, it can be up to 90% sometimes. Um, this one was not no. so successful yeah. and there was no healing evidence. So this person was either dead or died shortly after. Um, and it's really fascinating because it it's the Hippocratic text is often seen as the, the first description of this practice. And it's the first documentation we have of, of cranial surgery in the ancient world. And it's, might be the first written documentation, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's documentation of the best way to do it. Okay. So there's some interesting theories about whether the Hippocratic author was ever actually a surgeon who was performing this himself or if just, it was just knowledge just he gained thoughts. from somebody else. Um, but there's still some things to work out there, but it's really interesting to see maybe a real surgeon, maybe not, maybe a bunch of different surgeons. That's really the, the big question with um, like that Homer. text is who's the author. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it, just, so it same. isn't, it isn't that it would be Hippocrates, a, a guy named Hippocrates. It could be yeah, like a that's, school or is that, is that, that's the struggle. We don't really know. Okay. We know that there was a real person named Hippocrates and we know that he probably did write a fair number of these treatises. But there's also a lot of them and they don't all follow the same style. Um, some of them involve knowledge that is very unlikely for one single individual to know. There's, there's no one 
Hippocratic author that we can say with certainty wrote every single text Okay. Um, in the same way that we can't be sure that one single author wrote all the books of the Iliad or all the books of the Odyssey. Yeah. Um, it's a very similar kind of question. And there are a lot of theories about the school of Hippocrates and how that might play into questions of authorship. Um, but we largely don't really know. Um, yeah. But we do know that a lot of his information wasn't new. It was pulled from local sources, pulled from um, traditional healing practices or medical practices from other places on the Mediterranean. Um, so there's a lot of different influences in that text. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. Cool. So it actually is much more dynamic and yes, uh, then, yeah. and, and then, um, we're going to take a real quick break. Um, but before that, I have one more question before we put this, this section of our conversation to bed. Um, and that is why would someone have cranial surgery? Oh, that's a good question. And there are actually a lot of reasons. Um, one of the main reasons is cranial fracture. So if you are in like hand-to-hand -hand combat and you end up with a big blow to the head, um, the ancient way of dealing with that and dealing with that fracture or internal um, pressure. Um, right, because it can swell. Yeah. Exactly. And that inflammation, um, the way to deal with that would be to relieve the pressure through an opening in the, the, the cranium. And there are a lot of examples of this, even dating back to the, to the Neolithic. Um, mm -hmm. The success of this is well known in many different cultures. Um, so it was something that could be turned to for all sorts of different maladies um, that didn't involve fracture as well. Um, if someone had something like headaches or um, psychological problems are often also cited um, at people who don't seem to have any other injuries. Um, and the the amount that it could be used for, for religious purposes is somewhat debated in certain cultures, but broadly it's seen as a successful practice. So anything wrong with the head could be potentially relieved by mm -hmm. creating a hole in it. Mm. Sure. So I, 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 I like to believe that it was a kind of straightforward in, in the way that we think, oh, we have a, a, a scrape, we need to put a Band-Aid on it. They think, oh, we have a problem with head, we need to take a piece out of it. Mm. Sure. It's probably so much more complicated be, than that, but. Right. <laughs> so would there be something removed or yes. would it just yeah. be like a hole? Cause like I've absolutely had sinus headaches that like, I, I think that like, <laughs> if somebody does it, like, today's the day, the hole, today's the day where I, that, yeah. like, that would help. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and definitely do not go around just doing this. This is not something that anybody should <laughs> no. ever attempt to do because unfortunately that is something that people sometimes try for some reason no. in certain no. new age Public service announcement from the problem. dirt. Don't do that. Yeah. Please don't, don't do that. that. Um, please don't do that. But um, for the ancient people, um, there were ways of scraping, there were ways of drilling, and largely you would be removing either through small chunks of scraping or through a physical like 
full roundel of bone. Um, and in some societies, we find them used in religious purposes, which is where the possible religious connection comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was wow. fully. You just used a lot of words head. that <laughs> you just used a lot of words that made me lightheaded. I, if it makes you feel any better, and what, uh, full of regret for asking. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, once you're past the the skin of the scalp, there's no nerves involved. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, and we have even some. There's a really cool study on uh, an anthropologist in the 1960s. I believe her name was Mahoney. Um, Where's this going? Because oh boy, a study in the 60s. Goes, yeah, well, she goes into the field. Um, she oh, no. It's maybe not the most ethical study <laughs> oh, today, no. but what oh, she no. ends up finding... Yeah, you may or may not want to include this, but oh, it's, we're it's interesting it. for my purposes. She ends up finding a group of people, um, I believe... Ooh, I can't remember where. I believe in Kenya, um, who still practice this ancient style of scraping, cranial, cranial surgery and trepanation. And she talks with several people who've received the treatment and several people who've performed it and several people who got it talked about, yeah, once they got past the skull, it was completely comfortable and it was just like any other medical procedure. (laughs) Sounds, but also without anesthesia. So yeah, that's a level of ouch that may or may not be comprehensible to us in Western medicine yep. today. At some point, so. I would think your body would go into shock. But again, I yeah, I'm speaking Anna's from, not that kind of doctor. I'm not that kind Anna of doctor. Anna keeps telling me this every time I text her a photo of something. Else. <laughs> like, please stop texting me photos of that rash. Yeah. I but we do treat you. still use this today in, in real surgery. Mm-hmm. It's now it's called a craniotomy. Um, and we replace okay. the piece of bone that we take out, yeah. but it basically follows the same principles as any other trepanation. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, a useful thing to be able to do yeah. for, for any head surgeon, I guess. I don't know what yeah. they're called. Yeah. Neurosurgeon, I suppose. Yeah. Although I guess they work more on the internal. Skull doctor. Thing. Skull doctor. There you yeah. Go. Well, if yeah. all you skull doctors out there listening, brush <laughs> up on your on your trepanation and trepanation skills. And uh, <laughs> we're going to take a quick ad break and then we'll be right back. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. 
right. So we're back and let's talk about the field. Yes. Um, so, um, Allison, would you mind sharing with us what a typical day in the field is like for you? Um, is there a typical day? Yeah, well, that's a little bit of a difficult question um, to some extent because I am still a young scholar and I got mm-hmm. stuck in the middle of the pandemic. Um, so yeah. two field seasons have been taken from me. No. Sadly. Because um, I did not get lucky enough to find a dig that was still occurring. Um, but for me, being in the field is a little bit different than a normal person because not only am I just disabled in general and my experience of the world is different, but I have a giant 80 pound dog who (laughs) comes with me everywhere. (laughs) And that's not exactly the most normal experience in the field. Um, I was able to go to field school in Ireland at a site called Carrig and which is, it's near Wexford, which is in Southern Ireland. And the field director uh, is really wonderful and welcomed Bo and I to the site with open arms. Um, but it still takes a little bit of time to get acclimated to the site and everybody needs to become comfortable with being around a large dog. Um, but for the most part, I wouldn't say it's entirely different from any other archeologists experience in the field. I still have to spend a lot of time digging through dirt that has nothing in it. (laughs) I still have to spend a lot of time cataloging finds that are tiny pieces of things that probably don't mean a whole lot. Mm. And I also find really exciting things like everybody else. So to, to some extent it's the same, Um, but I also have to think about things like what my pain level is going to be. Am I a bit too overwhelmed to deal with certain aspects of the site one day? Um, how is my service dog feeling that day? If he's a little bit more excitable, that might not be the best day to work in the lab. Um, so there's different things like that, that I might have to think about. And it's usually not an issue. Um, and from my experience really has never been an issue. Um, but some people are often concerned that it might be. Um, and for me, I, I still, have yet to to really find my kind of groove in the field because I've mm. not really gotten that like regular experience of getting to go back to a site multiple seasons or um, even just getting to um, work on a site that's within my, my speciality. Um, mm-hmm. Digging in Ireland was wonderful, but I was digging up an, a, a medieval castle. It's not exactly... Um, ancient Greek or Roman material. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm still waiting for, for that to happen. Um, and I think that that next year will be the year. Um, I have open invitations from, um, the site at Mount McKeon. Hopefully I'll nice. be able to go next year and possibly other, another, another site that, um, is associated with Arizona, um, in Lugano and, We'll see what happens, but largely, um, my biggest concern is, am I going to fall over today? Am I going to pass out today? Um, 
but that's also why I have Bo and um, we work through things as they come up. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just, it's, it's about being flexible and kind of knowing my limits and knowing when I need to take a break and when I need to step away and kind of take some time to myself. Mm. Yeah. Cause I'm disabled and um, I identify as autistic and those things combined make my experience of the world very intense. Um, I love being outside, which is why archaeology is one of my joys of life is getting to go and dig in the dirt. Um, yeah. But at the same time, being in a crew and being around lots of people and having to deal with the bureaucracy of a field site are all things that don't necessarily come naturally to me. Um, mm. So I've had to learn when I need to advocate for myself and when I need to step back and take care of myself. Yeah. Um, and that, that balance is probably one of the most important things that I've learned, not only from being in the field, but just being in school in general. Um, so I like to say that being an archeologist isn't just being in the field. It's all of the schoolwork and all of the research and all of the lab work oh, absolutely. that come yeah. with it. Um, and all of that's important and all of that's necessary to, to come to terms with, um, as someone who's trying to exist in an academic world, that's not built for me. Um, I'm, I'm, I believe at, at this point, it's a really ridiculously high number of autistic students who drop out of school. Um, so for me being in a graduate level program, um, is a pretty big deal. Um, yeah. and I've had to learn what I can and can't do. Um, And taking care of myself has been one of the best skills to learn and helping myself progress in that, in that work and in that research. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And also I, I thank you for, um, I don't know, for your, like your candor about your experience of like, you know, applying to a dig, getting rejected, going to a dig, having the, because that's something that, um, when I was a wee baby (laughs) graduate student, I thought that you just sort of got a dig and you just were on a dig and then it was your dig. And then you had a dissertation about it and then you like went on, but that's not, that's not how it works (laughs) for a lot of people. And I think that, um, it's just, um, we didn't intentionally structure this conversation this way, but I'm so, I love that. Like we had an opportunity to hear your like considerable knowledge about (laughs) your, um, your field of, of interest and, and focus. Um, and, and then for you to be like, well, I don't, I like, I don't have a lot of field experience. And like, I was like, well, but you like know so much. So I think this, this is a really great way to kind of demonstrate, um, that kind of precarity in graduate school of like where you know a lot, like yeah. there's a lot, a lot that you know, but like it's, it's such a multifaceted, um, uh, as you, like, like you said, that it's not just the field work, yeah. um, but yeah, so that's, uh, and then I have just a like little follow-up question that is, um, possibly silly, but just sort of when you worked in, when you and Bo were working in Ireland, mm-hmm. um, so did you have like a square or a trench like and you were sort of at level and like was he in it with you or was he nearby yeah because that's that's like i'm just trying to like logistics of dog yeah (laughs) well no because like no it's it's because that's something that's a very valid question he's a big guy absolutely (laughs) 
I saw and like is his does um and so like does his job um require him to be um immediately at your side or does he look on and I'm not asking you to like disclose anything about (laughs) your um no no that's totally okay but but just like thinking about because I'm I'm just thinking from the perspective of somebody who may be listening and who may work on a field Mm -hmm. site or may be in a position to influence who gets to come on field sites and to think about like well like would a service animal be a problem? I've had mm-hmm. field directors that are like, take off your shoes. If you're going to be in the trench, I don't want footprints. <laughs> and so I'm just thinking like introducing a dog and like little yeah. doggy footprint, big doggy footprints. Oh, like, is that something that like, is a, is a factor in that? Yeah. And that's a really, that's a really valid question. And I think that's one of the things that most field directors are most concerned about is, Oh my God, is this dog going to go in and completely destroy my site? Um, which I, I completely understand. I mean, he is a dog. Dogs are not exactly like equivalent with meat digging. Um, that's not really what we associate them with. So I, I completely understand. But in my case, I am able to be away from Bo for amounts of time. I usually don't like to go beyond like 30 minutes if it's like absolutely necessary. Like if I'm working in like a clean room um, where it's not exactly appropriate. You can't, for, you can't suit them up. No, not really. I know that there are ways to do it um, if necessary, but I've never worked that out. Yeah. Um, but usually on the field, um, he'll sit kind of next to whatever trench I'm working in. And I just kind of work away and all of his tasks are really scent based. So he's what I, in the, or in the service dog community, we call medical alert dog. Um, so he can let me know when different issues are oncoming so I can handle them appropriately. Um, and so really all he needs to be able to do is get a good whiff of my breath every like five, 10 minutes. Um, so kind of the, the way that I would, I would deal with that is I'd kind of go and work and he'd be sitting on the edge of the, the, the trench and he knows to not <laughs> step over the trench oh, lines and he knows not to go in the pit unless he absolutely has to, um, which should almost never happen because I'm, I go back and check with him every couple of minutes, mm-hmm. like as, as I go and empty a bucket or bring an artifact out, I'll go by and have him do a check. Um, And that really just mitigates any potential issues that I might have. And if something comes up, I know about it and I'm already moving Mm -hmm. out of the trench and can just stay out of the trench for a while until whatever it is that he's alerted to is passed. But he just kind of hangs out and sleeps, honestly, most of the day. Um, I have some really great pictures of him just cuddled up next to um, a a wall that had been deemed fine. Like we would stand and sit on it all the time just as we were working on the site and he'd just lay next to it and hang out. And that was his spot. Um, so it, it will depend on the specific site that I'm working at, specifically yeah. how he where he's set up if he's tied to something if he's not tied to something if he's 
directly right next to me if he's fully outside of the site. Any of those options are are possible. Um, And it wasn't an issue having him in Ireland at all. He was really good around the site. Um, Okay, thank you. Yeah, I just just wanted to um, ask about that just from the perspective of just kind of like visualizing what like, you know, if I can imagine myself on a site, what might it look like to have yeah. someone with a, a, a medical alert animal or a service animal of another yeah. type mm-hmm. like they're with them oh so thank you oh hello what a good day like i need to come check so that's that's exactly what i was yeah. talking about yeah does he, he like, does he summon you for 15 minutes kind of oh mm-hmm. he's like i've been outside for 15 minutes and i have not heard from me he's like let me in Oh gosh! Wonderful. Should be I'm here. glad that we got to we got to hear from yeah here. yeah a brief soundbite from Bo. Okay. Um, so you've been very active on Twitter and at conferences about support in archaeological fieldwork and just in archaeology for students with different types of disabilities. So can you walk us through some of the top practices that you recommend? Yeah. And this is the bulk of what my essay presentation was really about is what field sites can do to become more welcoming to students and scholars with disabilities, because we exist. There are lots of us um, and there are likely a lot more students than we realize who are interested in this type of work who just don't feel welcome, um, who don't feel like they will be supported. Um, and who don't feel like they can even try and go to field school um, and try and volunteer on sites because of the issues that come along with being disabled. Um, And I think one of the biggest things that I noticed in my own experience um, was not only was I rejected from that one field school that I applied to as or the, the field site that I applied to as a junior, Um, But I was rejected from many others in my search to find a site that would welcome a service dog. As far as I know, in an academic context, I'm one of the only people who's done this. Um, I'm still waiting and hoping to hear from somebody else who has a service dog who's been on a field site in an academic context. But I do know um, that there are other people who have had service dogs on archaeology sites um, one program in particular called the Archaeological Veteran Veterans Recovery Program, um, I believe is what it's called, um, run by Dr. Stephen Humphreys. Um, and they work with veterans, specifically veterans who are trying to reintegrate into society. And they have kind of looked to archaeology as a way for veterans to, to do that. Um, and I had a discussion with him, um, in the process of prepping for my essay presentation. And he mentioned that several of the veterans have service dogs, many of whom are for PTSD, um, and they did great on site. Um, and he largely credited that to his willingness to work with them. Um, and that's one of the things that I found most difficult to to confront when going to field school is that it wasn't about whether or not I could actually do the work. It wasn't about whether or not I had the skills or the abilities. It was about 
the field directors being concerned if I did or didn't. Um, and if I want to be an archaeologist, I can be an archaeologist. I don't know from what I'm swear. <laughs> I just realized I have a bleep noise. <laughs> we have a little bleep. <laughs> okay. Like, and that's the thing. If a disabled person truly wants to come to archaeology, the likelihood that they can be an archaeologist is pretty high. Um, and disabled people can make that decision for themselves, whether or not that they have the ability to do something. Yeah. Um, and that shouldn't be up for debate. And that shouldn't be a point at which someone is rejected from something. Um, so I think the the biggest issue with field sites and accessibility is fear, to be completely honest. It's not necessarily that there's no possible way that a disabled person can come and be an archaeologist. It's that I'm afraid about what might happen if a disabled person comes to my site. I'm afraid about the liability. I'm afraid about the health issue. I'm afraid about the potential for um, like damage to the site is also one that I've heard be a big concern. Um, and there have been a lot of different studies, um, maybe not a lot, but a couple different studies um, out of the UK um, just on perspectives of disability in field work. And I think one of the most annoyingly poignant bits that will always stick in my mind is that one of the respondents to their, their survey about disability is that one of the site directors believed that it was absolutely absurd. And I talked about this quote in my, in my presentation, they believed it was absurd that a disabled person could possibly be an archeologist or do field work, mm. which is just absolutely ridiculous. Disabled people do field work all the time. We just don't consider them to be disabled. They just didn't tell mm. you. <laughs> exactly. They just didn't mention, Oh, by the way, hi, I'm a disabled person. Um, but there are people with limb differences or mobility impairments with sight impairments is really common. All three of us are wearing glasses. Um, but that's a disability that we have a common and socially acceptable, um, mobility aid or not mobility aid, but accessibility aid. Um, yeah. To, to deal with that. And that's seen as totally fine. Mm. You, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody being rejected from an archaeology site because they wear glasses. Mm. But things like canes, things like walkers, things like wheelchairs, things like service dogs are just not associated with the normal range of socially acceptable disability. Mm. So that's really where it comes down to is figuring out how to deal with that fear that so many site directors have and figuring out how to make these sites more accommodating in ways that are really possible, but just aren't being done. Probably the other most important thing that I would say is to identify somebody who can actively work on accommodating disabled people and working towards making a site more physically accessible mm -hmm. um, with things like bathrooms or transportation services or yeah. um, just even just housing accommodations for some sites um, can be a really big difference on whether someone is able to go to a particular site, whether or not they'll be able to have access to consistent electricity. Um, yeah. Certain medical devices require that. Mm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't do the work at that field site. 
Um, so there's a lot of different things that need to go into it, but I think it's more about the willingness, the effort that people put in. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily a topic of can they or can't they, it's a topic of what can we do? So I think yeah. that there's, there's, there's a lot of different ways to approach that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for those examples and sort of talking about like those, the, the different ways that, that one may need accommodation yeah. and, and there's like no what accommodation right looks answer. like. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I don't know all the answers and I don't know all of the ways to accommodate every single disabled person. I know what I need for myself. Yeah. And I think that, um, I can imagine that like, there's also just a degree of trust and just like trusting that the person who is asking to participate actually knows whether they can, what they knows, what they need, knows what, what their levels are. And, um, and, and that's, uh, because if, if you, trust that the person coming to you and saying, I want to work with you. I want to work on this site. Here's what I need, but they, but they know, yeah, um, or that they have the tools to adjust and like mm-hmm. figure it out. If they're like, Oh, I didn't anticipate yeah. this additional need. Yeah. Um, and so what you're like, what you're describing though, like what you do and what you've done is like, you are both a student and an educator and you were an educator on something outside of your um, and it doesn't sound like it's a bit related to because you look at uh, sort of medical, yeah. like, me- like medicine and yeah. like the medical experience in the past. But I can appreciate that it must be exhausting at times that like you you don't have the opportunity to just like, oh, I'm just doing my Greek homework and then I'm going to like <laughs> tootle on off. And like you have, there are other th- considerations that you must make and I would love to hear if you have any advice or, or tips or just sort of wisdom um, mm-hmm. for, for students who, um, you know, like you and like many people are navigating their own research and their coursework while also advocate, advocating for themselves and their place in the field. And also maybe even people considering getting into research and coursework yeah. and, and looking at the prospect of doing that while also sort of existing as someone who needs to advocate for themselves. Yeah. And I will say there's no perfect world and like, it's not an easy thing in by any means. And it, it is very exhausting. Um, largely the last year and a half being in the pandemic has been a little bit easier for me because I'm not in person with people. I don't have to explain what this giant dog is doing here. (laughs) Um, I don't have to deal with people not knowing how to interact with him. Um, so my experience has actually been a little bit easier than it usually is (laughs) being in the pandemic. I've also been very lucky to be at the University of Arizona, which is often credited as one of the the more disability-friendly universities. Um, The the program here is very welcoming to me, and I've gotten a lot of really great support. Um, But this is not really the standard, and I've dealt with a lot of issues and confusion and people not being willing to accommodate me mainly throughout my undergrad experience. Um, And I think that even in the last five years, the experience 
of being in academia as a disabled person has started to shift. Um, and there started to be some, some really great changes that are happening in a lot of disability resource centers and, um, and offices, um, that I think are really benefiting the students themselves. Um, but I think my, my biggest kind of tip would be you have to be willing to be vocal. Um, to some extent, I wish that that weren't the case. I wish mm -hmm. that we didn't have to self-advocate. Um, but being disabled in academia is not being the, the norm, not being the person that classes are built for, not being the person that buildings are built for. Largely, I've been really lucky to find advisors who have been willing to advocate beside me. One of my greatest advocates has been um, Professor Amy Richland and Professor Papadopoulos at UCLA, and they've been incredibly forthcoming with she can do this. She can, she deserves to be at these sites. I, I think that without those kinds of advocates, my experience in academia would be a lot more difficult. Um, and so I would urge anyone working through their own research and working towards their own degrees to find those people and seek those people out, seek out the people who are willing to advocate beside you and who are willing to listen to you and sit with you and, and tell you, no, it's okay. Take some time off and, go take care of yourself. Um, I think that was one of the most valuable pieces of advice that I ever got while working on my senior thesis. From my undergraduate advisor, I, I went into his office one day and I said, I don't know what to do. I'm absolutely struggling. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I'm in so much pain. I need to get this done, but I also have to work, but I also have to do this. And my laundry list of, of to-dos was a million miles long. I, I had something that was due the next day or the day after that I was, I had no idea how I was going to get done. Um, he said, you know what, just take some extra time. Not every professor is like that. And it can be really difficult to avoid those professors. Um, but to some extent that is the way of the world as we live in it right now, that some people are willing to accommodate us and others are not advocating for yourself in the face of those who are not can be really challenging, but it can also be really necessary, but it can also be really beautiful to find people who accept your experience of the world and who appreciate your work for what it is. I'm able to do the work that I do because of my experience of being autistic and because of my experience of being disabled. My research is intimately connected to that experience of the world. I can't remove it from my scholarship. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, this is Anna's known me for a long time, so she knows that I do this a lot. But I'm just like, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that was a lot. Uh, no, like, thank you. No, thank you so much for sharing that. And also, um, I'm very, oh God, I'm very um, struck by uh, and moved by your comment that you think in the last five or six years that things have started to shift. Um, because when I was in school, uh, the first time, and we can cut this out, Anna, it's okay. Um, Let me know if you want to, ago. or we want to leave it in. I, I mean, I don't know, like maybe, like, I don't know, maybe this is something that people should hear. I don't know. No, I think it is. Um, that I, um, I, I live with the mental illness that at that point was not diagnosed and I struggled considerably. Um, and I wasn't lucky in that way. Um, and, um, you know, I had, I had experiences that were just, um, you know, people that like, didn't, didn't know, hadn't been trained, hadn't 
put themselves in the path of training. Um, I don't, I don't know. And then there were also, uh, there were others who, um, were just, um, inconsiderate and callous and, um, and my academic career, um, I thought ended, but actually had gone on hiatus. And, and so, um, you know, I wrote this question, <laughs> like sort of semi selfishly, like I want advice. Um, but, but also, um, I'm just very, um, heartened to hear that, um, that, you know, you named multiple people in your career, which, you know, arguably isn't that long of a career, like you're still a junior scholar and that you have like multiple people that you can look to and say like, no, they, they, um, you know, were, were allies. They allied themselves to me. They were advocates. Um, and I think that that is some of the best news (laughs) that I've heard in a long, long time. And, um, and, you know, just thinking about, um, you know, you, and you've, you've talked quite a bit in this conversation about people who have visible disabilities or people that may be coded as disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you know, somebody saying like, it's absurd, Well, you've, you've worked with people with disabilities, they just didn't yeah. tell you about them. And so having that kind of, you know, for much of my life, I think I was able to move through the world and nobody knew. Um, and then after a certain point, I think people started to figure out something. Um, and, and just like having that, that sort of like nagging fear and that nagging concern. And so hearing you speak to like hope and the positives and like the existence of, of, of people in increasing numbers, uh, that are, um, willing to like recognize someone's work and capacity to do work on its own merits and not hold um, any disability that they might have against them, because that's, that's what's happening. Like, even if, you know, even if you're masking it as concern, it's still, yeah. um, So thank you so much. And I just wanted to explain why I was just quietly crying. Um, But this is no, but thank you so much for that. Yeah. And I, I don't want to make it sound like I've, I've had this perfect career where I've had all of these amazing people who've helped me. And I've, I, it's, it's more my own, my own coping mechanisms for dealing with the crap that, that has yeah. happened and, and rejections and, and people just being like, that's the only reason I'm not allowed to go do something is because I have this service dog. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of that, that perfect midway between the because I without Bo around I I look like a pretty normal healthy young person Um, and it really is my service dog that tips people off that something's off Um, so it it's an interesting experience to kind of exist in that space the only way that I've been able to figure out how to deal with it is, is like hold on to those those moments of there are people who are there to help me. There are people yeah. who care about my experience. There are people who want to help me and be there and continue my career and help me advocate for myself. Um, and that, that is out there. Yeah. Tremendous advice. Yeah. Yeah. So to remain mindful of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And to not let the crap get to you. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of horrible people who believe some really horrible things in the world. And as 
limiting as it can be, sometimes the best thing is to just not associate yourself with those kinds of people. Yeah. Find cool people. Probably. Yeah. It's probably better in the long run to like the way that it was kind of framed to me, it's going to be better in the long run to be at a program that actually cares about you and your experience um, than to be in a program that's more prestigious or has a better name or whatever, Mm. or a bigger stipend. Um, although that would be nice. Um, I I think that'd be nice no matter what, but you know, sometimes it's not right. (laughs) Well, speaking of Bo, during your essay presentation, he had a little, a little cameo, uh, at least an audio cameo, um, when you were talking about him working in the field alongside you, he was rolled around like a sweet little goober. Um, (laughs) so in terms of getting ready to go to the field, would a service dog like Bo need additional kind of field training to say like, this is what's okay. This is what's not okay. Or our service animals. These are small fines. <laughs> these are fawnal. We're going to need to, <laughs> we're going to need to screen these. Um, <laughs> no, or so are in their standard service animal training, are these animals field ready once they, they graduate? Yeah, that's uh, a good question. So basically the, the, the short answer would be no. Um, <laughs> but the long answer is that service dog training is very different depending on what type of certain service right, animal yeah. they're going to be. So a guide dog typically has the longest training period and they're typically only trained by programs, but a service dog like mine may not have such a long training program. Um, and at first I actually owner trained my service dog, which basically means that I did all of the training protocols myself rather than paying for a program or a service to train him, um, which can be incredibly expensive. And the U S is really the only country that allows that, um, and we're that actually allows expense or that, that allows, that allows the, owner training, the owner training. Okay. Yeah. Most okay. other countries require you to go through a program, um, okay. or receive a dog already trained from a program. But in my case, owner training was a really necessary part of some of the tasks that I wanted him to do. Um, and being directly involved with his training, um, was really important to me. Um, but <clears throat> Most service dogs, when they go through a program, um, will come out with standard obedience training and task training, which basically means that they're trained to perform a task which can mitigate a person's disability. And that can be any number of like hundreds of different things. There's all sorts of different things that a service animal might do. Um, but none of those things include working on an archaeology site. Um, so <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Shocking. Um, so I did have to work specifically with him to figure out how he might handle being around a dig site, being around other people working, being around sharp tools and objects and walls and things like that. Um, and I was very lucky the undergraduate university that I went to the university of Laverne has a mock field site on campus where we do our archeology span lab classes. That's so good. Um, So while I was taking my lab course, um, I was doing double duty and also training Bo to work on an archaeology site in a manner that wouldn't actually harm any potential sites if things were not to go so smoothly. Um, And like it it did take a couple weeks to teach him, no, you can't dig there. No, you can't step there. No, you can't lay here. 
Um, but after a while he got it just like everything else. Um, and once we get on a particular site, there's still like certain things that I'll have to show him and like teach him where certain boundaries are, where, which areas he's allowed to go into, which areas he's not allowed to go to, especially with other people. If there's somebody who's allergic to dogs, um, or is even just afraid of them, I'll yeah. have to make sure that he knows this is not somebody to go and talk to while we're taking a break or something like that. Um, cause usually, um, most people like to pet a dog on their break, which is a very nice morale boost. <laughs> Honestly, like I bring extra things to a field site, um, <laughs> beyond being a great archeologist. Um, I will totally toot my own horn, um, but yeah, so it, it, it can take a, a couple days to get him acclimated to a particular site or not. Um, and with things like, um, high pit, like pits that have high walls or, um, more delicate features, it's important that he understands that he needs to be incredibly careful um, and he's a really smart dog, so he picks things up very well. Um, but we're actually in the process of getting a new certification for him, which is the assistance dogs, international certification, well, an advanced so basically, degree, basically. Yeah. Know, it's like graduate PhD. doggy school. <laughs> PH um, dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the ADI certification will basically, it's mostly actually for traveling. Um, it'll basically allow us to fly internationally much easily much more easily um than if i didn't have their certification but it also just tells any country that we're going to that he does have all of the proper training protocols and that he has been vetted and uh, tested by the appropriate um people um whoever the governing um, body is of of that (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm like still standardized, like that. That in multiple countries, you can be like, yes, mm-hmm. he has. He's ticked these boxes, and and it's yeah. standardized enough that people go, yeah. oh, okay, yeah. It's You're really not just cool, like some rando who's like, no, it's my dog. Like this dog has <laughs> a. Job. It's like this. Like yes, and that really is only a problem in the U.S. Fake service dogs are not a problem Mm. in Europe. I Mm. did not have one single issue with this when I was in Europe Mm. with him at all. It wasn't an issue because people people just don't do that. It's a service dog. And it's mostly because owner training is not allowed. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Some given some take there. Also, Um, you know, universal stuff like that. Exactly. (laughs) Um, but he did require some extra training and it would be important for anyone who do one who does want to take a service dog to an archaeology site to be willing and able to do that for themselves yeah and so he um we really i just like (laughs) we're just i hope we can talk about the dog (laughs) (laughs) i love talking about my dog that's why i have it well not not really but uh, what a good boy. And so his his work schedule, because mm-hmm. like I I completely respect assistance animals and service animals work and that yes. you can't just like kick it with them. <laughs> like that that's like as much as like, you might I, want I, to. I, will, I know. I, I always want to. So good, but I but like so does he have breaks when you're on does he have office hours later? Well it's like does he like get to like hang out and like be a dog on a site or is it yeah. like all business on site? I really try to give him a lot of breaks 
he does such important work for me. It would not be safe for me to be really anywhere without him. Um, I like could not leave my house before I got him safely. And it was like a major hassle anytime I had to do anything. So I try to make sure that he gets everything he ever wants, that he gets all the pets that he wants, that he gets all the treats he wants, all the toys he wants. He is like the most spoiled dog. He has like two beds. He gets a bed that like we fly with all his toys come with us. All the things come. I, I try really hard to make sure that he has a good amount of time to relax and take a break and not worry about me. And to some extent, he's always working because yeah. something could always happen to me. And yeah. he does know that. But he also knows that there are times where, okay, if I'm sitting down, I'm probably not going to pass out like I would if we're walking around. Um, like there are certain experiences and certain parts of life where certain things are more likely to happen. And he knows that any dog content <laughs> comes across our feet. It really seems to be it does well. Hit. So, you know, yeah, I can't I'm think why surprised. Yeah. dogs are. Yeah. It's just, it's a, it's a weird fact of life. Dogs are just, just wonderful. Dogs are great. They're just so good. They're just so good. <laughs> I, I mean, it's more than um, a fact of life. It's, it's evolution. Like they, we co-evolved yeah. with them. We turns made out, them that way. Yeah. It turns out. Yeah. We, <laughs> they made us better. We made them better. Uh, yeah. dogs. <laughs> All right. Dogs. Okay. Well, all right. We can well, thank have you. our other Speaking podcast, of- Dog Talk. <laughs> so, well, um, on the topic of making things better and making each other better. Oh, what a good yeah. segue. Good job. How would you characterize what an equitable and inclusive archaeology looks like? Yeah, I think you touched on this so, a bit, but. Yeah, you, you did a bit yeah. of sort of like best practices, but sort of like, what's your like dream? Like when would like if you look around and be like, yeah, this is yeah, it. This is yeah. Like, uh, I mean, do. I I think that that dream is is too broad for my mind to conceptualize um, in in a, in any real way. But I think at the at the base of it, it it means different kinds of people with different kinds of abilities from different kinds of backgrounds, not just disabled people, uh, but people of color, queer people, people from lower socioeconomic um, backgrounds, all of those different identities, which help us broaden our, our own, our own understanding of the world. That's what I would hope to see in the same way that we have like all sorts of different archeological sites that we like to visit and interpret and go to and all of those things. And we have different methods that we use on each of those sites. Like you wouldn't use the methods that you use to excavate a bog in the middle of the desert. Um, nope. Why, why would we have one type of person who excavates every single one of those sites? Um, I think that's, that's really what I hope to see is a willingness to change the way that we do things. Um, yeah. Cause even, even if we look at our, our own archeological tools, my travel looks the exact same as a travel from a hundred years ago. There's <laughs> gotta be some better showing. There's gotta be a better way. Yeah. And I know that there's a lot of work being done on this. That's um, really exciting. Um, and we have a lot of different technology that's been developing that I think is kind of nicely compatible with the abilities of a large portion of the disabled community. Mm-hmm. Um, where 
archaeology isn't just sitting in the dirt and digging anymore. There are a lot of different methods and technologies and tools that we use in the field that need all sorts of different minds and bodies to operate them. So that's what I would really hope to see is, is more types of people doing more types of things in more types of places, more of it, more, more, more of everything, more okay. of all of it and more understanding. That's really when I, when, when, when professors ask what they need from me, most of the time, it's just understanding. Um, and there's a lot of different accommodations that are particular that I might need or others might need in certain situations, but overall beyond any of those things, I've had such better interactions with people who are willing to take some time to understand me than people who aren't, even if they're people who are trying to meet my accommodations. Okay. There's understanding. There's a difference. Yeah. There's a difference between, Oh, you, you, you need this thing and understanding why somebody needs that thing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. We're going to, we're going to take one more very quick ad break and then come back with our two mainstay questions that we ask each of our interview guests, which may or may not be the hardest questions we ask. So they kind of are. (laughs) That's what everyone says. I'm having a hard time coming up with what I wanted to say. All right. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back and now on to our two hardest questions. The first one, Allison, what is your favorite thing about anthropology? You know, I really thought a lot about what I wanted to say for this question. And I think I had to go back to why I ended up studying anthropology in the first place. Um, <laughs> what made you regret? A very, very long time ago. As a wee teenager, I, and as an undiagnosed autistic person, I had no idea what the hell was going on in anybody's mind around me. I was so confused by everybody that I interacted with. And I was introduced to anthropology and it was the study of man was how it was introduced to me. And I was like, oh, perfect. This is What's going on with people. Oh, this is this is great. I can figure out what the hell is happening here. So I think that's probably one of my my favorite things about anthropology is that it helps me figure out what the hell is going on in the world. Because um, I there's a lot of things that I just don't inherently understand. Like I mm-hmm. I always I grew up trying to explain to my mother how. I always felt like everybody had this rule book and I, I really wanted her to help me get this rule book because I didn't understand 
why everybody knew how to do things and why everybody knew what the right thing to say was and why I always said the wrong thing. In studying anthropology, I, I really think it's it's helped me figure that out a little bit more, <laughs> at least a little bit. And it's kind of funny that I ended up studying ancient people and studying dead languages and things that are no longer a part of our modern world. But, you know, things happen. Um, <laughs> Everything. <laughs> but I actually say that I, I have a... Re- reboots? <laughs> yeah. Let's reboot Greek. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's close enough. Hmm. But I, <laughs> I always like to say that I have a, a special interest in people. Um, and, and anthropology is just kind of one extension of that. Um, yeah. So I, 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 it's very, it's very selfish. That's totally no. fine. <laughs> that's a great answer. No, that's a, that's a really great answer. And then this is see, this another is, great answer. Yeah. All right. From you. Um, our last question, if you could be a fly on the wall for any moment in human history, prehistory, mm. uh, or in the history of anthropology as a discipline, mm. uh, what would you choose? You know, I I also thought long and hard about how I wanted to answer this question. Um, And I think for me, I have to be really, really stereotypical and answer the Library of Alexandria because there's just so many books. I don't think anyone's answered that one yet. No one has. For classicists, it's like the answer for those types (laughs) of things. I think at like parties with other classicists, I've heard it like three times. (laughs) I just want to know how many books in there I could read that would tell me things that I want to know. Yeah, I want that for you. So many. There's so many. So many books. Well, you know, it is. It is. Yeah. Thinking about all the books that have like been been that guy, but like all the books that have been have written and lost and just like the small sliver of of like written history that we have access to and amber it's your I fault like- that my brain is going don't say atlantis don't say atlantis don't say atlantis <laughs> don't say it don't say it's it your fault. i feel like i have to clarify i do not want to be a fly on the wall for the fire no 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 the not, library, it's a dead no, fly here, but like a couple years before that yeah know? exactly, like, exactly. <laughs> yeah um, if only if time travel ever actually becomes a thing no i want to be first in line it's a physics question we would have, we're not we would have such power I I want time travel to be possible only to see. Like I want to be able to scry Mm -hmm. the past Mm -hmm. because then you avoid all that difficulty of being able to mess the butterfly effect. Yeah, like mess with the timeline. But if you could just like see it, view it like through a screen or something. But one might argue that that's what archaeology allows us to do. You know, scry the past. Closest thing we have right now. The trio of time travelers. Um, (laughs) back to the present. Allison, uh, besides your Twitter handle, your great follow on Twitter, very fun, which is at a blank underscore page blank spelled B-L-A-N-C-K. Do you want, is there anywhere else people can find you? Do you want anything you Um, got going on? I mean, technically I have a page. uh, I have a graduate student page on the University of Arizona's website. You um, do. I've looked at it, which Not also has way. my email on it. Okay. Maybe if somebody okay. wants to go find my email, they can go find that there. 
Um, yeah. Uh, well, that's going to do it for us this week. And thank you again, Allison, for joining us. Um, listeners, we'll be back in your ears next week with another episode, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or anywhere else that podcasts come from. Uh, they, they come from the iTunes store. Uh, you can also find us on social media. Follow us over on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast, on Twitter at Dirt Podcast, um, and where we retweet cool research and silly jokes and roughly equal roughly measure. Equal measure. Um, and follow us on Instagram at The Dirt Pod as Anna learns how to use the stories function. I'm, I'm trying. I'm learning. I'm figuring out how to do it. I'm doing the occasional poll. I'm doing the occasional <laughs> question. I'm putting a GIF up there. Look at wow. me go. Uh, so, so you, like... We have we have seen both the sunrise and sunset of fleets on Twitter before we've managed to do anything with it. I no, I chose not to do anything with it. Like one moving story <laughs> picture thing is enough for me. No more. No more. I'm old. Or if you don't want to go to any of those places, you can instead see all of our social media smashed together on our website, thedirtpod.com, where we also have fun merch like stickers, mugs, and t-shirts, plus all of our back episodes, which constitute literal days worth of listening. Yeah, you could spend a week listening to us. You really could. Actually. Um, that's good. If you wanted to. I wouldn't. You don't have to. Please don't. Um, and with that, thank you for listening, everyone. We love you. Yeah. And th- thank thank you, Allison. Yes. Thank you for thank you. joining us. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm, yeah. I'm so glad that we got to do this. Yeah. Us too. It's really, it's really fun. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Great. Bye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.